2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com
1: talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for
0: select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC.
2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books in Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Amy Wright. Wright is an essayist and artist, one who works across a dizzying and dazzling range of subjects and media. However, in her new book, Paper Concert, A Conversation in the Round, not only does Wright's voice shine, but she also celebrates the voices of nearly 50 other contributors. She's written, or maybe I should say assembled or orchestrated, the thoughts and reflections of a dizzying and dazzling range of thinkers, artists, scientists, and true human beings, sharing their experiences and reflections on what it means to be, to live, to make, to grieve, to laugh, and, as Wright's entire book attests, to share meaningful conversations that leave us all the richer for the encounter. I'm deeply grateful to share our conversation with you today. Amy Wright, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, Eric. Thank you.
2: It's great to have you. And I'm so excited to talk about your book today, Paper Concert, A Conversation in the Round. And I think one of the exciting things will be to to talk about even what that title promises for readers. But I I wanted to start you off with a a really easy question. Um, And I should probably say this is a book that is that is shaped by questions that you are asking authors and there's one that comes back again and again. So just off the bat, when in your life have you felt the freest?
1: <laughs> uh, that seems like an easy question, but it's actually pretty complicated, which is why I kept asking different contributors over the years when they had felt the freest because it changes like so many of our answers do. And But I felt freest as a kid, um, really growing up on a farm, because the farm, as I'm going to describe in, um, in one of the excerpts uh, from the book that I hope to read for you, um, it's it was a wide open space, and so we just had a lot of my brother and I had a lot of freedom to run and play and explore the woods, and and um, yeah, I don't think you ever get. Quite as free feeling as as being a kid before you um, recognize any of the world responsibilities, you just get to um, be without any of those in the woods and besides streams, running around playing.
2: And, and so one of the one of the terms that shapes the the title is concert. Could mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit about why it is that that this question comes back to? You you ask it again and again of different authors, and it's sort of this, I don't know, chorus or refrain that helps give shape to the entire book. Um, What was it that that made you so curious about this question of of freedom and even freest, you know? (laughs)
1: I ask a lot of really hard questions in the book. Um, I ask what it's like to grow up native um, in America. I ask what it's like to grow up a black and female in Tennessee. Um, I ask what it's like to experience gender um, discrimination and, and sexual orientation discrimination and various really personal and um, weighty questions. And so to some extent, I I wanted to counterbalance that with some moments of beauty and grace and levity. Um, And so I also talk about humor. And so there are a lot of moments about, you know, what's your favorite joke? Uh, I ask a lot of people that too. And and that provides kind of a similar, um, a similar, Function—it's it, not appropriate, of course. The when are you, when in your life have you felt freest? Isn't appropriate across the board for all the contributors' interviews either. So it just kind of depends on the nature of the conversation. But it's definitely a preoccupation that I've carried over the years.
2: Well, let me let me uh, ask a little bit further. It could have been, given what you're saying, it could have been when you felt the happiest when you felt the most joyous, when you felt the most levity, but you know, we're, we're thinking a lot right now in America and globally about freedom, um, Mm -hmm. with, the the debates about freedom around the pandemic with, the the issues of freedom that are coming up with the racial reckonings around the the black lives matters movement with what's happening at the border. So it's, it's a supercharged term at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just kind of curious, you know, as you were working on this book, it's an 11-year project. It's this huge labor of love that you've been orchestrating for a long time. Um, how does that feel for you right now as it comes out into the world with, with that term um, so charged?
1: I think it's really important to remember that the feeling is personal and it comes from a lot of different experiences. Um, And it's important to acknowledge that freedom in each other, um, that, that ability to feel free, because, you know, it, it varies. It's, we can enable that kind of freedom for each other too. And so especially that's, that's what's happening now where we, um, Uh, some people are privileged to have more freedom, just like they, you know, we have more space and more um, rights, you know, healthcare rights and accesses and, and things like that. But I think that freedom in particular, it just gets to the heart of something that's more fundamental than just joy or, or um, just the juxtaposition of levity. It, It really gets to the heart of what matters to a person, at least, at least that's how I see it, and a lot of times with the answers, it's really revealing of something that's that's foundational in the psyche. Because joy, uh, you know, we we have we maybe have so many moments of joy, and it's so fleeting and um, and so particular to the experience itself. Um, it, it doesn't really touch on that same common. Um, territory like freedom does. Freedom really, it, it's still a heavy question. Um, so I, I guess I don't really ask softball questions as as one of my contributors kind of pointed out, but um, it, it really gets at the heart of what matters, I think.
2: I, th- I think that's exactly what the book does. And no, you don't ask softball questions. Even even your questions where you're asking for a joke never really seem <laughs> to end in softball material. Um, and that's one of the the beauties of the book. I mean, I, I feel like we have to take a moment and pause because I'm excited to talk about the particulars of the book, but just to give listeners a sense of what this book is and does, because there's, there's really not another one out there like this. I mean, you're doing something, if it, if it's not new, it's, it's a rarity, especially in contemporary American letters. Um, and, and it's beautiful. Could you just give us a, a kind of sense of, for somebody who doesn't know the book, what is it?
1: Well, it, it's called, the subtitle is A Conversation in the Round. And I was thinking about, you know, music and how music and art, artworks happen in this sort of three-dimensional space. And so this conversation never actually took place. That's kind of what the paper concert alludes to, that it's it's just a concert in book form, um, you know, you have to bring it to life, the reader, by, you know, hearing the language, hearing the voices in concert. But the actual conversations were one-on-one conversations that happened over about about a dozen years, ultimately. Um, And those conversations were in my head, um, in conversation with each other in this kind of concert. But they didn't uh, exist in the world in that form. And it, it seems like a shame to me because I'd gathered a lot of profound stories and insights that I wanted to share and that I wanted to collect and be able to offer to people, because to some extent, it just it seemed like a, a valuable resource, um, a, a kind of life's guide. A, you know, I, I called it a survival manual in the essay that originally um Uh, was published in the Georgia Review that became the the entire book later when I lengthened it. Um, And it was a kind of survival guide for a kid who doesn't know how to act, but is constantly looking at the external world to seek, you know, affirmation and, and guidance. You know, I was just oriented that way, you know, growing up as a, a young girl in the South and, and, um, I, I kind of adopted all of these mannerisms and habits from my context. And so I thought that we needed to bring the voices together as I heard them and to represent this concert um, in some sort of collected form. And it, it took a while to um, to resolve the form itself. But I, I did so by weaving in personal essays in the same way that the conversations were um, not one-sided interviews, they were always a back and forth dialogue. And so I wanted to recreate that dynamic in the, the book by including these excerpts, anecdotes, and stories from my own life that kind of give a sense for me as an individual so that I'm not just a disembodied um, questioner that's kind of posing these these questions to the, um, to the interviewees who, who then respond. I was also a, a an integral part in bringing these conversations out because, you know, you, you build up trust and rapport and people wouldn't share some of these stories, which are deeply intimate and in some cases hurtful, um, without trusting me to, um, you know, be safe and in, in presenting them.
2: Yeah. There, there's a moment where you say in my family, there were stories you would never hear if you asked for them straight, right. Mm-hmm. That you had to have this context of trust and kind of gentle prodding and, and create an environment in which the story could emerge. And one of the the powerful things about the book is you feel as though, you know, here you are with these essays that introduce each conversation kind of creating that context for us, the readers to listen more deeply, to invest ourselves more deeply, and then suddenly the answers come to all of these different kinds of questions from from authors, painters, musicians. It's it's really poets, um, and and so we find ourselves sort of in those moments where you know when when the conversation starts to become a little more whispery, and and things come out that really matter, um, and you feel like you're in in some kind of intimate connection that's almost bordering on secrets are okay. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um,
2: It's a really wonderful atmosphere.
1: Thanks. Thanks. It it definitely felt intimate as I was having these conversations. Um, And it felt intimate to reveal, you know, the the personal essays too. Um, Maybe it'll help if I I, um, read one.
2: Yeah, that would be great.
1: So this one comes, it's called, this is chapter three, and it's called Sound Travels Through and Around Barriers. And all of the chapter titles come from something that one of the interviewees said. And that was actually a line of David Haskell's. But I'm just gonna read my prefatory essay. Every spring throughout my girlhood, insects known colloquial as news bees emerged with the pollen and hovered nearby as if to tell you something. Wings buzzing like radios broadcast from another room. I tried to make out their messages as I strained to hear the muffled words of my parents talking in their bedroom after they kissed me goodnight. It was easy to imagine a hoverfly's presence companionable. They couldn't sting you any more than a ladybug who climbed gamely aboard an extended finger. Because my grandparents' farm was surrounded by Jefferson National Forest, I grew up in a landscape that dwarfed its inhabitants. We lived under skies whose bright planets I pictured in geometry class when we learned about parallel lines that never meet. When lightning bugs filled the trees on summer nights, they warmed the reaches of space, gilded the darkness, stars come down to close the distance between us and the next galaxy. The land was densely populated, just not by people. Deer roamed the woods, and skies, along with foxes, eagles, possums, coyotes, snakes, field mice, mourning doves, and the ghosts of Cherokee and Tutelo tribes who had been killed or driven from their homes by settlers who whitewashed, whose whitewashed version of history I inherited. Had the news bees I thought friendly in fact been reporting, they would have implicated me in past and present crimes." But the only communication they hoped to share was that the patch of golden rods or violets I plucked was their territory. As a child, I felt I belonged to the natural world. I was of it among the mating calls of tree frogs, crickets, and katydids that thickened the screens we opened on summer nights. Congresses of geese honked into alignment just as my younger brother and I shouted from the backyard to find each other. Bulls bellowed their dominion behind plank wooden fences while we fought over toys until periodical cicadas scattered shot into rounds that silenced all of us. Thunder cracked over limestone bluffs that exposed geographical strata as textured as these sonic layers, which would have crashed into cacophony if not for the prolonged rest notes held by the mountains. Even as a child, I knew this score unfolded not in 4-4 time, but in 1 in 1.2 billion. I could hear only a minute fraction of the whole composition, but it encouraged me to keep listening.
2: Thank you for that.
1: Thank you. Could,
2: could you talk to me a little bit more about listening, um if a reader picks up the book and it flips it, they'll see an introductory essay like you just read, and then they'll see something that might at first glance look like an interview until they realize that the person being interviewed keeps changing um, as it goes through, and the questions don't move in a linear manner, but in a more poetic and kind of associative manner. Um, And so when you, you glance at the book, right what you what you see is answering but what becomes clear as you read it with your questions is that you are you are listening and have been listening not just to what the people are saying in your interviews but to their work there is not a single dumb question in the whole book they are all smart and based on a familiarity with the author's work or the artist's work with whom you're talking or with a deep-seated care and investment in the crafting of the question. And so there's this sense that that you have listened very hard before the process even begins. And I just wonder if you could talk about listening as a a skill or a talent or maybe even a, a way of being or a an, a kind of identity forming.
1: Well, first, thank you for saying that. I, um, I appreciate it. I, <sighs> So I think the reason why I wanted to start with that section is because growing up in that environment, I was surrounded by different species and I didn't get the whole story, right? I mean, as much as I would have listened to the crickets and katydids, I mean, I was projecting onto them. I felt like I was part of that environment. It took a lot of, you know, biology class and and different conversations with naturalists before I really realized what they were communicating. Um, it it wasn't quite as friendly as I might've imagined. And there weren't so many people, you know, I had my grandparents live just over the field um, until I was seven. And then, you know, we just, it wasn't, it was a small town, you know, I grew up in rural Southwest Virginia. And so, As I kept my world kept getting bigger, you know, first going to grade school, then going away to um, college, and then going further to grad school, Uh, my world kept expanding. But the one thing that kind of grounded me, or that that remained constant throughout those years, was that by listening to others, I increasingly understood the context better. I understood myself better and the world around me. The the book starts with the question, you know, who or what am I? And in trying to answer that question, I'm asking everyone like that, you know, like this little lost pup who who doesn't quite know, you know, are you my mother? You know, who who am I? What am I? And, and I was kind of looking for that mirror to reflect me back to myself. And so, and they did, you know, and they will, your context will reflect you back to yourself because you are, you know, a product of that context. And so if you don't ask enough people to bring together a vision of yourself in the round or in full three-dimensionality, then you're going to retain a kind of flatness of character. It seems to me, um, that that's my understanding of, of self is, is that, you know, you have to be in reflection, um, of multiple perspectives in order to fully understand all the facets of your, of yourself.
2: That's beautiful. I am something like the accretion of all the voices that I'm willing to, to throw my voice toward and see what comes back And if I cut myself off from different voices, I limit or delimit who I can be.
1: It it seems so to me. Um, and, and I consider myself very lucky to one of the reasons why I de- dedicated this book to my students is because every semester they change and I get all these perspectives, you know, and they grow younger each year. And, you know, these different ideas and points of view and ways of looking at the world and and life experiences and, you know, geographies and, um, you know, and I get to see myself you know, reflected in their eyes and changed, you know, I'm always changed by um, these different perspectives that I encounter.
2: I, I think one of the, you know, if I was going to go for one of the quickest reasons why I would send someone to your book and there are many, um, it would be that, that right now, in our moment, we're, you know, with, with everything that's been happening in the last year and a half, Many of us are just starved for a sense of community, starved for being around those students, being around those groups of people that do reflect back dimensions of ourselves that that are much harder to access in isolation. And then there's this sense of isolation and loneliness and separation that that many of us are experiencing. Um, do you did you feel in putting together this book um, that there was something like a a, comu- a community accruing or or generating because to be in it is to sort of be among fascinating people um you know, which is just like, oh, I just want to be out right now amount around some people that are lively that are talking about important things you know that that are fully human um and this book says, well, well, here, read me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, one of my contributors, Kamiko Han, talks about it as a cultural intelligentsia. Um, at one time I was asking her why she includes science. So uh, so many of her poems are grounded in science. Um, and so, and I was talking about why she does that. And one of the reasons is to just put to establish a conversation between the various disciplines. So she's doing it in her, in her poems, the kind of conversation that I'm um, implementing in the book, you know, we, we need to talk across disciplines and across um, demographics and, and across these various divisions, which I I'm sure the pandemic has made us more aware of the need to even, even as it's unfortunately made us more aware of the divisions. I'm hoping that you, um, it will shake out toward us realizing that the divisions are ultimately small in comparison with our commonality.
2: Well, so one of the interesting things that that I found in the the autobiographical and memoir sections of the book is that you're, you really do focus on your childhood and your early adulthood in introducing yourself as the author of the book, as the one who's orchestrating the conversations. And and I think it's worth saying that you are also a writer who works in a vast array of of genres with a a wide swath of interests. You're an environmental writer. um, You're a poet. You're a memoirist. You're an editor. You do art criticism. I mean, there's just this, this wide swath, but in the, the the Amy Wright that we meet in the memoir sections, you wouldn't know that until you got to the author bio at the very end of the book. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about the dynamic between kind of your, you know, mature adult artistic self and the younger self that you chose to foreground. Um, we started with... With that was a place where you had a sense of the most freedom and kind of moved into that was also maybe the origins of listening. Um, but I, I was curious about that absence. There's no, you know, it's hard for most authors to get their egos out of the way in the interviews that I read. And so they're, they're often starting a question to another author with in my work, I do blah, bitty, blah, bitty, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And, and you are, are, are kind of so generous in, I'm interested in foregrounding the person I'm talking to, um, but you're also doing that as someone with, you know, a tremendous number of accomplishments as a a writer and artist yourself. And so I'm curious about how that dynamic of your own art making went into your choices for what to include in the book and what to exclude and why.
1: That's a big question with a lot of different facets. I, in terms of I, I do appreciate different genres and you know I like to make visual art and I also like to make music and then you know and, and all of those things do complement um, ultimately my written work um, in various ways that I, I, I don't know um, that I always understand, but that is what interests me about other artists and how they're working. And, and I think it kind of comes down to that that common ground, not, not to oversimplify any of my contributors, because I, I really appreciate the different perspectives you know, represented throughout the book. But I also, within that difference, I think what interests me most is when you can find something core or human, you know, that, that you value. So, so maybe if I'm working across different mediums, uh, I might think about why am I doing this? Why am I making anything? Why does one make art? Um, you know, that there's a, f- a kind of fundamental question to that process that across, you know, poetry and, and visual art, and, um, that you're striving to accomplish. Um, and if you can understand it, then it, it makes, I guess, the transition a little smoother. So, and and you don't always have to have the same, it's not like the same goal um, that we're all, or we all have to agree on anything. It's just that um, there's something useful about searching across mediums because, you know, you'll answer, you'll come up with different answers to the question of say how to live or how to live in a racist society or how to live in a sexist society or, um, you know, how to live when you don't feel safe um, expressing your, 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 sexuality or or something. Um, And, you know, that question can be answered in art in different ways than it can be answered in music, Um, in different ways than, there are a lot of scientists in here too, in different ways than it would be answered, um, you know, by a biologist who's, you know, working on listening to the songs of the forest or something. Um, But it it just, it it amazes me that, you know, if you do listen to the forests, or if you do listen to um, all these different instruments or vocalizations, um, in the natural world, there are orchestras, um, that, you know, people who go in and and make recordings of rainforests and things like that can hear, you know, and there's timings and there's rest notes and, um, and, you know, and they, they kind of work out, um, when to sing and into the silences between them, and then it, it creates a kind of symphony of sound. and And I I think of the the concert and the book in this way that you know it takes all of these different kinds of voices, um, and and we're not raising them all toward one uh, simple ambition or goal or something. But but in raising them together, it just seems that's beautiful. It's it's not like the tree frogs and the crickets have timed their their song in order to make a beautiful. Um, you know, song for the universe they, they they're trying to get their mating call in before you know it gets drowned out by you know the next species to uh, to start theirs so um but it doesn't stop us from appreciating the, the fact that it does sound beautiful um and the in the, the texture of that contrast there's something um, fundamentally worth listening to
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe
2: In that explanation that you gave, if we kind of take that as a metaphor for the book, in some ways, you provide the forest space for all of these different voices to, to come in um, and, and sing their song or do their call. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just curious, as you think back to all of the different people that you interviewed for the, the book, if there were one or two that you'd want to put in a car together... to just see what would happen if you could just say okay you you two are on a road trip and i'm going to sit in the back and hear what happens Mm -hmm. does somebody jump to mind does it does a combination jump to mind um which might be a way of asking you know you you were alive to these different currents these different energies of conversation um and you were seeing how they were working together and speaking through you um Having having felt that, having listened to those, just imagining what other musics might emerge. Because mm-hmm. one of the things I hope for from this book is that it it doesn't become as singular as it is right now, but it becomes a model for for other artists. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to be teaching it to young artists in my graduate. Class coming up because I think it's doing such important work, and so I'm trying to imagine the conversations to come. And I was curious if if any of those popped in your head.
1: The conversation that I I'd, I'd like to you know put everybody in a car about it, it would change based on the day, but right now I, I say that um, it would be. Um, Ira Sukrungrung and Filoni Slaughter, um, Dorothy Allison and David Huddle, I would, I would put in this vehicle. And it's because in, on some level, they all touched on this notion of self. And again, it gets back to my original kind of question of like, who or what am I? Um, and it touches on your um, observation that I was trying to present myself or trying to become a kind of space um, a listening space where we could you know sound our, our differences but but all of those writers that I mentioned um, and they are all writers except no they're um, three writers um, and one retired librarian, a, um, a Cherokee woman where she talked about her native upbringing um, but she came to a realization about selfhood that is truly profound in, um, in the book um, just on the the level of, humility um, and, and I think rooted firmly in her Native American um, heritage and IRA came up sogro came up with a similar concept of self um, through snorkeling you know this <laughs> going underwater and being absorbed in that in that world and um, and the change in sound the change in energy when you get down there and everything um, sort of shifts, you know, the way you might look at the world. Underwater is going to be very different from the you know, your land view. Um, and, and David talked about it in relation to um, photographing birds. And so he loses that sense of, you know, I am David Huddle taking, you know, calendar-like photos of birds. He wasn't interested in the, doing that. He was taking um, photos of birds just doing their bird thing, you know, daily domestic bird life. Um, and in trying to capture those moments that, you know, are so often missed of, you know, just feeding a seed to, you know, um, another bird or something like that. He, he, he forgot about himself. Um, And so all of them in those moments um, recognize something really, I think, profound to the human experience. And if there's something that um, I would like to really push and keep talking about and and have a, a, and more in-depth conversation about, I'd really like us to talk about What do we mean, you know, by these concepts of self, if every one of you all has had an experience that was um, variously enlightening, you know, so um, when you weren't with yourself, when you had let go of that sense of, of personal identity and, and to some extent, that's, that's what the question about being free is also driving toward that um, the very thing that we think will um, will, uh, that will control our freedom is the thing that if to go back to Michael Martone's uh, starting question is that if you let go of that desire to control, you know, anything, including your own freedom, then it's possible that something even greater will emerge from a true freedom where you're not having to, um, you know, be responsible for enacting that freedom or that self, you know, that sense of self, which is truly sometimes a, a great burden.
2: Yeah, I, I would think that that would funnel in interesting ways into the notion of collaborative artistic process. I mean, you know, this is a a book that could be described as a a, a multi author congla- uh, collaboration, um, and where the the artistic self, you know, or or sometimes described as you know a sensibility or a vision what it would have to do in order to create collaborative work uh, of power and merit. You know, Mm -hmm. I I suppose there's some sort of version of that that could be you you take two strong willed artists and you let them clash about and perhaps something emerges out of that. Um, But it seems like, you know, this idea of, the self is most revelatory when it's, it kind of disperses is perhaps a more helpful guide for how collaboration could work and how something could emerge when, when the ego boundaries soften um, and the will listens rather than demands.
1: Mm-hmm there's something it's different, you know, this, because remember, it's, it's almost like one of those collaborations where someone um, just takes somebody's poems and turns them into song or, you know, somebody's art. And then they, you know, they make words um, that correspond to poems in, in relation to art. Um, and the original artist doesn't really have a say. Um, it's, it's a little closer to that. Fortunately all of my contributors have been very agreeable um, in letting me reappropriate their original interviews in this new format, but um, there wasn't a lot of back and forth, um, you know, collaboration because with, you know, over 50, um, contributors it would have taken longer than a dozen years but um, also it's just to some extent you have to have a singular person you know integrating and assimilating a kind of conversation like this just in terms of language and the way that you know communication works Um, we couldn't necessarily follow something that was going off in um, multiple directions without a single thread running through it but um but I do think that there's a lesson in that, and it works for individual art, too. Um, I mean, we talk about this all the time in terms of getting out of your own way or something like that. I mean, it's it's kind of in that same vein where the creative process, however you think of it, does have elements that are... Um, um, that you have to receive or access, you know, be open to, um, there are mysterious elements of it. That's why, to some extent, we continue to create It's because if we if we knew exactly what we were going to write, like, you know, um, some of my writers who do their composition essays, knowing exactly the argument they're going to make, um, I think you you get bored. So, you know, we have to surprise ourselves. And sometimes that comes from um, another person who's surprising us. And sometimes it just comes from this, you know, um, this kind of unconscious urge that, that rises up in the process of creating.
2: So even if it's the case that there, you know, you, you were kind of, okay, I have these interviews and now I'm, I'm sorting them and putting them together in ways that are resonating for me as, as the, the orchestrator, it seems as though there are traces in some of the interviews that, um, that the interviewees were wanting to to push the conversation perhaps in directions um, that had maybe more to do with you than you were initially interested in or, or to take it. Um, There's some very robust exchanges with Mark Gabba and with Dorothy Allison. And there are moments where suddenly even within the book, the, the interviewee and interviewer flip, And then it suddenly says, Amy Wright, and here is her answer. So I'm wondering if you could talk, you know, tell us a little bit about those moments. Maybe I'm off there, but it seemed like, ah, you know, here the conversation is is becoming perhaps more dynamic or, or, you know, the rules are changing in, in ways that might be surprising or fun.
1: Mm-hmm. I thank you for noticing those because I, I was proud of those moments in the sense that the conversations went there um, they also surprised me by by kind of taking the reins and it, and it does require um, somebody to step up and, and co-create with you there um, at that moment um, and and that's a moment of friendship um, in both of those um, situations you know Dorothy, Thanks to a, a university assignment, I got to spend a great deal of time with her um, that I wouldn't normally have gotten. And uh, Mark Gabba and I went to grad school together at the University of Denver. And so I I was friends with both of them. And as we're talking about that, we could push each other as friends do and as friends should, um, you know, when we answer too easily or we dismiss something. Um, and that was maybe my highest ambition when I first became an interviewer to, you um, To not just set somebody up to knock the ball out of the park or to shine on the page, but really to have conversations, you know, which I had gotten used to thanks to having good friends, um, you know, uh, earlier in life that um, people had who had challenged me and I wanted to keep that dynamic um, as part of the interview. But, you know, it doesn't always work. Sometimes you just need to, the work itself is challenging and, and, you know, you just want to talk about that. Um, But but sometimes you have to kind of push um, and it's a very, very, um, it's a fine line and you have to have established the rapport and trust beforehand because as I talk about at one point in the book, I was working with the metaphor of a spider web from the very beginning, just this enormous spider um, web that strung its... uh, a string outside my window. And then later on, you know, the, the rain comes down and tears apart the spider web. And I had that experience in one to one of my interviews where I pushed the interviewee too fast, too hard, um, without, without meaning to, but just assuming that we had established the trust, um, and the assumption, um, it didn't go well. And so I, I write about that in a, a chapter of the book. Um, and so it's, it's not without its risks. Um, and it's the same thing with friendships. I mean, I'm sure, um, over the years, you know, I've pushed friends in ways that, um, that changed our friendship. Um, and you know, and they've certainly changed me, but for me, you know, the, the kind of payoff is, is uh, definitely worth it. The,
2: the interviewee that you, you mentioned in that passage, you say that one of the reasons you were devastated by this is that you saw the answers that were provided by, by this person as kind of the moral conscience of the book. Mm -hmm. And I found myself wondering, do you feel now that the book is missing something of the moral conscience you wanted it to have, or did it shift to a new locus? Um, You know, there's this sense of like, oh my gosh, I lost this crucial that I I wanted you know like losing the violins or something like that um and I'm just curious as to to what happened to the project as you went forward with it without Mm that
1: yeah thank thank you for asking that too it's if you've ever lost someone in maybe in a relationship where they embodied qualities that you wanted to bring into yourself, um, I, I don't know, I, I at least was in relationships where I was like, I want to be like that rather than loving them for who they were. It was because I want to be more like that kind of person. I want to embody those sorts of qualities or attributes. And so when that interview he pulled out, I was like, oh, but I knew from past experiences and various relationships, I was like, I have to go get those qualities in me. Now I have to learn how to bring them out of myself. And, you know, ultimately you can bring out, you know, those qualities. It just, it's going to take time and effort and you have to um, go get different experiences and things like that. And it's not like you can embody uh, who they are or anything like that. It's not that simple, but you but you can um, become more conscious of the qualities that they represented and And, and I went and got them. I went and got different interview, um, interviewees so that I could talk to them about that experience. I went and talked to my friend, Michelle, who's mentioned in the book, um, so that she could bring to light some more, um, a part of the dynamic that, you know, that that person was taking away with them. Um, and so I had to go get it. Essentially, I had to go get it in a different form, which, you know, for a minute there, I wasn't sure I could do um, in the same way that when, you know, when you lose somebody in your life, you're not sure that, you know, they and everything with them isn't gone forever. Um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. It was a real, it was a really hard moment in the creation of the book.
2: Thank you for that answer. I think I think it's characteristic of a vulnerability that you show throughout the the book. That's really admirable. Um, you know, I, I wept at the essay that you have about your brother. Um, and there's there's a there's a moment at the beginning where you're explaining the nature of your methodology for the book. And you know, you mentioned the the spider's web as a kind of sustained image for talking about how this this book is going to work. Um and you say something you say that the methodology derives from fear, um, which is is a tremendously generous act of honesty, just to be like here, here's the the deep emotional impulse that's driving it. Um, and knowing that as a reader you you get to see this kind of like almost transmutation of of fear into beauty as the the work becomes manifest when you read it um but i I wonder you know there there are you know fear fear is not a thing that that, that Americans want to look at um Certainly, we're driven by it, but you know, even with working with with younger artists or even you know contemporaries, um, fear as a source is still tricky. And I wonder if you could talk about how you work with those kinds of emotions, those hard emotions, as a writer. Um, to say something like, you know, this book has a has a genesis in fear, and out of it comes this this kind of act of artistic beauty generosity and power um i think that's something that certainly i would want to learn from right how do you take these things that are almost too hard to look at and use them as the basis on which to build something of significance and meaningfulness for others
1: To some extent, that's why the spider metaphor um, works for me, because it's both, I mean, the spider builds a web or strings a web. And if you've seen the orb weavers, I mean, they, they have a 15 foot span where, you know, they'll string this anchor line across something. And I've since seen more of them and it just it still amazes me. It seems miraculous. But. Um, this tiny spider somehow makes this giant anchor thread. Um, and so of course it's doing that out of fear, like fear that it's not going to eat and it's not going to make it through the day. You know, if it doesn't manage to weave this incredibly wide web. Um, and so it's both very humble and also, um, you know, full of hubris. (laughs) It's like, yes, I are ambitious, you know, it's, uh, And that's what inspired me about it. But the idea of of fear—I think you have to learn to work with what you've got. And you know, uh, fear was what I had. I mean, I was—I was taught and conditioned fear, um, just out of uh, you know because my parents were taught and conditioned fear, and because their parents who were uh, raised during the Great Depression, you know, and were taught and conditioned fear, Um, and so you know, when, when that's what you've got, you know, you, you kind of work with it on, on a very practical level. It's, you know, uh, it motivated me to sort of um, go out there and gather this information to kind of um, bring back and allay the fear. You know, the, the goal was to um, alleviate the fear. It wasn't like I was like, yes, you know, <laughs> oh, this fear is great. You know, I can work with this. It was like, oh, what can I do with it? I'm going to um, turn it into something else. And I find that's often my my kind of mode is to try to um, shift something that's uncomfortable into something that's more um, more agreeable, whether that's fear or anger or, you know, hatred or jealousy or, you know, any of the, the uncomfortable emotions. You're like, okay, what, what can I do with this feeling? I can sit here and stew about it and that accomplishes nothing. Um, or I can, you know, make something out of it.
2: Yeah, thank you for that. Um... I, I realize I'm mindful of the time and, and want to keep chatting about it, but I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't give you the chance to recite There Once Was a Puffin. <laughs> and if you don't want to recite There Once Was a Puffin, maybe you could you could tell us about how that shows up in the book because it's, it's both charming, but it's kind of this poignant coming of age moment uh, in an instant as well.
1: I, I, if I probably have the whole poem, but it might take me a minute. I'm, I'd surely stumble, but I'll, I'll do a couple of lines of it. Um, so there once was a puffin, just the shape of a muffin. He lived by the side of the sea. He ate little fishes that were quite delicious. He had them for supper and he had them for tea. And so it, it goes on from there um, until it gets to the end of the poem when finally the puffin decides um, not to eat the fishes that were so delicious, but actually to invite them over for tea, which is of course unrealistic, but it's, you know, it was a poem in a children's book um, that I got. And so I had memorized this poem. It was a favorite, favorite of mine. And I just loved the sound of it. I mean, the rhyme puffin and muffin alone, it's um, <laughs> just basically my aesthetic, you know, it's just uh, the, the, the sound and then the, the weird quirkiness of that kind of rhyme. I mean, I continue to be charmed by that. Um, and the birds themselves are just delightful and charming. Um, but I had that whole poem memorized um, and I, I, you know, and it was very long. I don't remember how many stanzas, but for a third grader, it was just like, what, how old I think I was, Um, you know, it was a lot. And then I come to class prepared to recite it. And all of the other kids were memorizing these very grave and serious poems about battles. and, um, And I was like, are those the poems you all like? Like, I just couldn't believe that they liked those poems. And they didn't like them. They, just I'm sure now, you know, looking back on it, I'm sure that wasn't their favorite poems. That was just the shortest poems or the easiest to memorize or the ones closest to access, etc. And so, you know, I had this Emily Dickinson poem memorized, which I, which I pulled out instead of embarrassing myself by having this childish poem, you know, in my head. And that was the kind of moment where I was like, oh, there are unspoken rules. And other people seem to know them. And I don't and I've just nearly embarrassed myself and thank God I read enough poems that you know I was able to lie and pull out this other poem um but you know I, I wanted to to share that knowledge like you know we can't h- hold our knowledge secret you have to tell me like I can do it too you know as long as you um you tell me what the game is <laughs>
2: Well, I I hope that you will come back in the future and recite the whole poem again just out of joy um, for another conversation. Mm -hmm. Amy Wright, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network.
1: Thank you, Eric. Thank you for having me. It was a joy.
2: My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Amy Wright, author of Paper Concert, A Conversation in the Round, here on the New Books
0: Network.